Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. And welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm Brian Kruger, the producer of the show, and I have a producer's note for you. This is a two-part episode, so episode 172 and episode 173. They are both part of the same interview that Rich had with Robert Greenfield, one of our favorite guests. And he traveled all the way from Perth, Australia to be here. And I think you're really going to enjoy this, but we're going to cut it up into two segments, one this week and one next week. So we join Rich and Robert in conversation. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and we're bringing back a favorite guest, Mr. Robert Greenfield, all the way from Perth, Australia. We're going to talk a little bit about his travels, what it took to get him to beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we're going to talk about a lot of the issues of the day, and it's always a great conversation with Robert. The Common Bridge, of course, is at Substack.com. Please go to Substack.com, enter The Common Bridge in your search engine, and please subscribe, either as a paid subscriber or as a free subscriber. The Common Bridge, also on most podcast outlets. Find us there. Please subscribe on YouTube TV. And, of course, at Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. And so, today, from Australia, Robert, it's so nice to see you. Wonderful to be here, Rich. It's fantastic. It's summertime here in America. It's beautiful weather, so thank you. Great. Now, you had quite a journey from Perth. It wasn't Perth to Detroit. No. Well, how did you get here? Um, actually, we, I, I think it's a great way to open. I think one of the great challenges for uh, the entire world right now is travel. So we went from Perth to uh, Singapore, Singapore to Europe, a couple places there, Germany and Hungary, uh, then to Toronto, Canada, and finally uh, Detroit. And just a comment to everybody uh, most, I imagine, the audience is here in the United States. Uh, travel is a challenge uh, everywhere in the world right now. And everybody is struggling with a shortage of staff, shortage of this, shortage of that. Um, I have to admire the patience of the customers as well as the ground staff in, uh, in particular. But it took us five days, uh, you know, with a two-day stop in, in Hungary and uh, now we're here in the U.S., which is really exciting for uh, me and my wife, Gabriella, who's accompanied me, uh, to be here for reunions. It seems like in the United States, there's tons of reunions. You know, people are out and people are talking and people are doing things. And uh, regardless of what the, the media says, I, I find here a very uh, vibrant uh, atmosphere right now in this country. Yes, indeed, there is a disconnect between our media and the real world, and we'll probably dive into that a little bit. You know, Robert, last time we talked, you gave us an insider's view on the Australian COVID policies. Yeah. You were locked in a hotel room for a period of time. Yeah. Fortunately, you brought Gabriella with you. Good call on your part. <laughs> How did the, that COVID policy work out for the Australians, and what's going on there now? So, um Thank you for the question. I mean, Australia uh, was a lockdown country. Uh, Melbourne, in fact, I don't know if Shanghai is rivaling it now, but Melbourne had the longest period uh, over different times of lockdowns. Their lockdowns were very strict, meaning, you know, only out for the groceries kind of stuff. 
Uh, they had all, almost one year out of the two years plus of COVID where they were in lockdown. Perth, Australia cut themselves off literally from the rest of the country. So we didn't have as many lockdowns because we, we literally did not allow people uh, in or out. The challenge or the problem with that to me ultimately is that when you cut yourself off from the rest of the world, um, I don't find that to be a good thing. I think that the China policy uh, that Xi Jinping has is very negative. It's not just negative for the economy. It's negative uh, for the emotional, mental health of the people. It also, by cutting you off uh, from the rest of the world, you have a you know us against them uh, mentality, which he is really fostering at a, in a negative way. So for us in Western Australia, we were cut off. We were managed to leave after a lot of of work. When we came back, I have to admit to you, I was very frustrated. We were very frustrated. We're like, hey, the rest of the world is getting it back together. And I posted photos of shelf outages. So we were not getting things in. We were still on the toilet paper crisis <laughs> two years later. And uh, it's finally now, finally sorting itself out. Uh, we've been open five months uh, since then. And the remarkable thing to me is how quickly we as human beings are now putting this uh, behind us. It's uh, some people still do some masking, okay, kind of things. Uh, obviously, there's still COVID boosters, those kind of things. But people really, really want to move on. And the sentiment of the Australians in particular, and th this is the way Aussie's saying, we've had enough of it. Uh, as you stroll around Ann Arbor today, you'll see plenty of people wearing masks, not a, a minority, tragically, and um, Few blocks from here, here's a little class of preschoolers, and they're out on an outing, and none of the adults have a mask on, but these poor little things have masks on. And I've asked people, do masks actually work? And this is what the CDC says. Masks can help prevent COVID when combined with vaccines, social distancing. It's like, hmm, it's like the guy that buys the exercise machine, and it says, if you use this machine, you're going to lose weight. When combined with the diet that we've inserted in there, and it's 1,200 calories yeah. or something like that. So a lot of the discussion around COVID, you know, even giving people the benefit of the doubt, they didn't know what to do. There were voices, particularly the Great Barrington Declaration, that said we're violating every principle of public health. And it looks like they were right and that these lockdowns really weren't effective in doing anything but allowing more variants in and extending the pandemic. I don't know that we'll ever get to a reasonable conversation about it. Um, well, China has a, 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 another part of that. China did not order any of the mRNA vaccine. I think it's important for your reader or listeners to, to know that. What does that mean? They had their own thing called Sinopharm. Sinopharm uh, had low efficacy, and uh, that's why they have lockdowns because they don't actually have a backup plan. So if you don't have a vaccine that actually works, and, and they also did not vaccinate, by and large, the older population. So their entire policy in China is, you know, bass backwards. It really is not working at all. And this is part of the problem of authoritarian governments. You don't have a lot of of interaction between, you know, the, this side and that side in order to come to a consensus of what actually works for the majority of the people. So my feeling about uh, is that I think vaccines worked. I think the mask uh, policy was overblown. 
But I never really minded the mask policy for myself. I felt kind of comfortable in it. But then all of a sudden, one day, again, I want to go back to what the Aussies say. We're done with it. You know, we just can't do this anymore. As human beings, you can only lock us up for so long before we finally say we've had it. And I think that's really the sentiment now globally. Everywhere that you go, everyone's trying to figure out how am I going to get, you know, my my gas, petrol, you know, at a reasonable cost? How can I do this? How can I do that? I want to go on vacation, you know, for a change. I want to see my family that I haven't seen. And the last thing I want to worry about is masks or, or these policies. Are we forgetting and maybe not having the right lessons learned? I don't know. Maybe. But I know this. People are done with it. Well, they can be done with it emotionally. And Jim Baker, who's been on the show four times, and he writes a blog called Jay Baker Blog. It's great, called Pandemic Pondering. I'd highly recommend it. His most recent post said, look, we're watching herd immunity in real time. When we had the Spanish flu, people quit dropping dead in the streets. And so we kind of knew that the pandemic was over. He said, but there were probably variants out there, asymptomatic, and we couldn't see them. And this is where I think we just have to have a discussion and continued research. We really don't know what the vaccines do long term. I mean, right now we have a president who's gotten four vaccines. <laughs> he's gotten Paxlovid and now he's got another bout of COVID. 79 year old man. But we really don't know yet. They appear to work really well. How are they working today? And even the variants the current vaccine do not address the current variant. That's, again, something from Dr. Baker's blog, Pandemic Pondering. Um, highly is it, though, that uh, my understanding is that right now there may be no more COVID shots until the new uh, vaccine comes out, which is a BA5 or something? That's the really interesting thing is that there's groups recommending that, yeah, wait until the new variant comes out unless you're at risk. And then at the same time, you have people literally hell-bent on wanting to push this thing into the arms of six-month-olds, which I don't see any case for doing that at all. And again, this is where we need to make sure that our governments who theoretically work for us and the media who theoretically reports honestly start doing their job. Let's go a little bit further into China. I know you have a great deal of experience in this part of the world great deal of business experience, and also very appropriately technology and manufacturing experience. The CHIPS Act, I know we depend on Taiwan for chips. I know that there's a lot of saber rattling. Any take on what the heck's going on as far as the Chinese economy and what we're going to do for chips? Yeah, my my view on this is uh, this is a tremendous victory for the United States, the CHIPS Act. I think that uh, the numbers show it. The I don't want to say that Republicans would not like to see Biden succeed, but they certainly would like enough of them would like to see America succeed. And the CHIPS Act is a uh, a critical path, 280 billion. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of subsections, as you know, mm-hmm. of the CHIPS Act. Uh, so I think it's a really, really critical. As you mentioned, Taiwan. Taiwan is the one that makes the highest of the highest end of chips. So let's just say um, China does not need to necessarily attack uh, or invade. They can just surround it, surround the island. What are you going to do with the chips? You're not going to send them out by, you know, by airplane. So we really need to have our own reshoring of critical uh, technologies. One of the core arguments that I think uh, 
uh, whoever you want to say, whichever side is, is anti-globalization people, which I still don't understand. But anyway, has been that the wholesale outsourcing of not only manufacturing, but also the R&D that went with that um, really put the U.S. in a bind. And that kind of driving that profitability matrix, I mentioned before, Hewlett-Packard and other people mm-hmm. like that, they basically outsourced everything into where they were a brand manager. Well, that is not possible in the new world that we are in today. We're no longer, even uh, Vladimir Putin put it that way, and he's correct, we're not in a unipolar world anymore. And critically, it's not about Putin, it's more about China. So where is China at right now? I think Xi Jinping has been slowed down by the COVID situation. I think that actually the Ukraine situation, while he gets some cheap petrol, some cheap gas, he's not winning on that because now everybody is sensitized to what happens if somebody uh, attacks somebody else. That being said, he is amassing the amount of hardware and uh, technology that it would be impossible for the U.S. to actually defend Taiwan. We all know that the carriers now sitting out there are somewhat vulnerable. They're no longer, you know, the, you know, the perfect uh, war machines. They're only 100 miles uh, from Taiwan. Uh, you can also look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a, a, a test case, which Hong Kong is not Hong Kong anymore. Regardless of who you are on the spectrum, his showing up there, you know, recently in the last month to you know, wave on the 25th anniversary of the, of the handover back to uh, China tells you that, you know, he is now uh, accomplishing his mission. So my view on Taiwan is this. Uh, as somebody asked me the other day, what's going to happen with Pelosi flying over there? I said, they're not going to shoot down her plane. Okay, so that's not going to happen. Right? I hope they don't pull who wants that. That would be ugly. Yeah, exactly. But I, I don't think that it's not going to be that uh, dramatic. He is saber rattling. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where Biden has excelled has been in cooperation, uh, in collaboration. You look at North, uh, sorry, South Korea is now really a much better partner uh, through Abe and now his successor. Japan is a much better uh, partner. The challenge is, is do we want to have that kind of militarization of the world? The answer is no. But on the other hand, if China is going to be as powerful as it is, is there any other choice? And last one last point here is this. I don't think that Biden has changed one bit of Trump's policies, core policies. He's just got better uh, cooperation. And I know you were in favor of a lot of what Secretary of State Pompeo was doing in China. I hope people will go back and, and listen to those. But you, know, you touched on Ukraine and the Russian invasion. We had Professor Anthony Colangelo on talking about the legalities of what we could do to defend. Of course, it's been in the news where we are supplying advanced weaponry and F-35 jets now. And we had Timo Stewart on, policy analyst from Finland. The HIMARS are being very effective? Yes, Indeed. And now there is this proxy war, it seems, being fought on the ground of Ukraine. Terrible cost in lives and in destruction of cities. Any thought on how this resolves ultimately? Well, I think that uh, clearly the ratcheting up by the U.S. has been uh, successful. Um, It has. We got kind of a, a stalemate. Uh, HIMARS in particular are very, very effective to pinpoint, blow up munitions, things like that. So uh, the problem that we have is that Putin uh, 
is still winning on the oil front. And he can turn on the tap, natural gas, or whatever he wants to sell to China, sell to India. So he's got enough money to, to do that. What he does not have is technology. So the lesson on this one for China and anybody else to learn is it's Russian technology is old. Their command structure is not good. You can, you can see that almost every day. So the problem for the Ukraine is, is that all the high-tech weaponry of the United States basically keeps them about on par. Can the Ukraine uh, forces actually take back the Donbass or any other place like that? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. So I think in the long run, whether anybody likes it or not, Zelensky can keep saying, Europe, hang in there, support us. Winter's coming, okay? And there will be additional pressure on the Ukrainians to actually sit down and discuss. Now, we just had the grain deal. The grain deal was a good thing. This morning, as you probably already know, 26 tons of corn and wheat went to Lebanon, first time, okay? So everybody, even Putin wants to be able to send his stuff out too. So everybody gets that. Is that a precursor for something where we'll have almost like a, a ceasefire? My, my feeling is in the long run, we're gonna have a South Korea, North Korea situation. We're going to have a ceasefire where nobody actually says these are hard borders, uh, but they will, in effect, become hard borders. And that means that the eastern area, the Donbass region, all the way across, but not Odessa, that will still remain uh, uh, for the Ukraine. But the rest of it will become kind of a, a ceasefire border. In return, what, uh, what Putin's going to do is just he'll agree to stop. And what, that's going to happen sometime in the next 12 months, in my view. That would be a much improved situation over what we have today. And we had Professor Jesse Kaufman on from Eastern Michigan University. And he opines that he doesn't think that this war would end absent regime change, either in Moscow or in Kiev. So we should see. So I think everyone would welcome a ceasefire, let cooler heads prevail. Let me ask you your opinion, okay? you you're a guy that has uh, done extremely well in life. You probably met an oligarch or two along the way. And those oligarchs, my understanding is that, that Putin owns those guys. And so do you think Putin's really going to go? This is way above my pay grade. So do I think he's going to go? No. But as I kind of think about moving the chess pieces around, he has no other way out. He has to find some way to declare victory and get out. But how does he do that? Can he say, all right, I've got the Donbass and then I'll leave? Well, can Ukraine say, all right, you can have that part, but don't bother us anymore. You're going to be sitting there in a perpetual state of anxiety of wondering when the next Russian invasion comes. Absent something in a brokered deal where it would bring the Western powers in, which effectively would be Ukraine joining NATO. That is something that Putin said. So literally go nuclear over. That's why ceasefire is the only way. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, again, I think that's vast improvement. And ceasefire until we get regime change, because eventually we will get regime change. I mean, if you look at our adroit Cuba policy, it only took us, what, like 70 years or something to get regime change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think for, for Putin, my personal feeling is he's going to be there until he passes and he's in good you know, all the rumors aside, as uh, Anthony Blinken put it, he's in way better health than we would hope, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, there's a quip in there about the relative health of Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. I'm not going to even try to, to dig that one out, though. But 
Robert, a little closer to home. We have been treated to the January 6th committee. Don't know how this is playing in your part of the world or if you had a chance to watch it and what might happen next. Well, I have to say this. Outside the United States, generally speaking, people were, uh, there are people who like Trump, kind of like on the authoritarian side, and they kind of, uh, he, he was not without his supporters and places. Obviously, Hungary was a place that um, he had some support uh, in some other countries also. So it's not a, you know, we don't like Donald Trump per se. There is a broad consensus that he was not good for them, right? Uh, and for the rest of the world, meaning the democratic world, right? They felt that, uh, you know, they had to carry more and more of the burden and they weren't necessarily ready to do that. And Trump was pushing too hard, too fast. So I think when they look at January 6th, most of the people outside the United States are saying, yeah, we get, we get that. We, we watched it. Okay. So I think that the January 6th uh, situation is actually a much more of a domestic audience in the United States about how both sides are doing it. You know, the so-called ABC producer who's now turned this into a much slicker thing than let's say Watergate or something like that. So I think outside the United States, they are, uh, there's very few people who would like to see Donald Trump come back, including his former supporters, mostly because uh, in the uncertain world that we have today, he is, they're not afraid about what he would do to them. They're afraid about what he would do to the United States and his retribution towards everybody else, that scares them. The actual feeling outside the United States is that the U.S. could be heading for something, you know, almost like a breakup. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and it's very hard to read what's going on in the United States when you're outside. With COVID, people are starting to travel again. But I would say the, the entire world is sitting back going, we don't know about the United States right now. We're not we're not sure. As much as Biden comes around and everybody shakes hand and we got we're we're good friends. Right now, people say, uh, and I don't want to talk about reliability. I think it's deeper than reliability. It's much more like people always think about themselves. What does it mean for me if NATO expands? What does it mean for mm-hmm. you know each one of these kind of, Singapore? What does it mean if uh, you know they push on Xi Jinping? So most of the world right now is trying to figure out how do they fit into the What's it, honestly an evolving situation? Well, look, our, our system of government in the United States says, here's an administration that comes in. Another administration is elected and says, okay, we're going to care for the country for the next four years, hopefully the next eight years. And even in the differences that you see in election campaigns, people tend to moderate to the middle. Um, if you remember uh, Barack Obama being elected with a, a change agenda, and he said, you know what, would have liked to do that. But early in it, he said, we've got to deal with this financial crisis first. He was a good steward and said, and, and look, people can debate whether it was the right policy or not, but he at least made the right priority. And I think did a lot of right things there. Okay. And in retrospect, you know, he wasn't uh, the guy that forgot all about taking care of the country. I, I think and this is my view that Donald Trump is just about Donald Trump. And everything he's doing is for Donald Trump. And I can't imagine him being elected dog catcher versus anything else. You and I have worked with a lot of executives. 
we know that you can't be an effective executive running anything if you're careening from pillar to post and preening and spewing things out randomly. It just doesn't work. People don't know what you're thinking and, and where you're going to go. And you don't want somebody that is arguably the most powerful person on the planet doing that. So I'm thinking, okay, a, a major party defeated presidential candidate. You move on. You try to regroup and try to get the next one. Notice the Democrats didn't bring Hillary Clinton back. She lost. It's like your yesterday's news, you're done. And the thing that really puzzles me is why are the Democrats so afraid of Trump running? I mean, I, I'd sit there and go, if I'm the Democrats, I'm like, we beat this guy with a very old guy that couldn't get out of his basement. Yeah. Like, like, we're going to lose again? I, I, I don't get that. I have um, not spent as much time on core as I used to, and I answered a question about that, who's going to win in 2024? And I had a picture of Biden and Trump, and I said, neither of these guys, right? Right. And so uh, I've got almost a million views of that in two weeks, which is extraordinary given the non, mm-hmm. it's summer after all. And I, I basically, I say the same thing, which is that um, whether the Democrats want him or don't want him, if Donald Trump gets nominated, there are so many people who don't want him. Uh, the only person probably that he could beat is Kamala Harris that I can figure out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Maybe Mayor Pete. Because of there's a latent prejudice so that some people are not going to vote for a, a gay candidate. Well, well, no we, well, if they unwrap Pete's record as a failed mayor. mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, he's, he's in way over his pay grade right so, now. So that leads us to, uh, and, and I agree with you on everything that you said about Donald Trump. I don't think anybody um, has, not anybody, 90% of the people in the United States now get that. They may, some may still support him. But none of them can say that he's there for us, okay? He needs to move on. I think that his influence is exaggerated. And and I'm going to talk about that later on when we talk about the upcoming elections. And in a recent episode of The Common Bridge, I did a short solo segment about you won't be Biden or Trump as the nominees in 2024. Not going to happen. And, you know, yesterday I watched uh, on one of the news programs, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's a guy balancing different. I'd like to mention. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> no, there's a good candidate. He saved the Democrats how many times? Yeah, right. Yeah. You can, I mean, you know, like I, I'm loath to put out other names, but, you know, the Republicans have a lot of great options. The Democrats have a few good options, but you can certainly do better than a Biden Trump rematch. But back on January 6th, here's the situation the way I see it. There's only four things that can happen right now that Trump's indicted. Trump's not indicted, he's convicted, or he's not convicted. And which one of those four do you think could happen? Well, here's looking at the tea leaves and watching the pundits and picking up their nuance. I'm going to guess no indictment. I agree. And I think the the committee has served its political purpose that by their own admission, what they've said is, hey, we went through thousands, thousands of hours of tape and video and depositions, and we brought you these 26 seconds. That to me says, okay, there's some kind of defense in, the, in those other unreported things. And I, w- I would imagine the attorney general's looking at this and saying, do I have a winnable case? And so I'm thinking that the attorney general is most likely to not bring an indictment. What that will mean is like every other thing that they've gone after Trump about, 
well, he's guilty. And now he's getting away with it again. And that core, that MSNBC audience, they're still going to believe he needs to go to prison. I don't know if he does or not, but I, I think they're going to have a hard time proving it. My, my view on this is that um, there's always extremes. The ones on, sorry, the right, the ones on the right are going to say, there, you know, of course he was never guilty. My feeling is this. I don't want to see an indictment because I think it's bad for the country. Okay. I don't think that we should be indicting uh, former presidents. I think it's a uh, bad precedent. I think the blood in the water would be really negative uh, for us. We don't need that at all. Um, I think what the best thing that can happen is that, which you'll talk about the, you know, 2024 in a bit, is that the Republicans come up with a good candidate who can help ease Trump out, not just to tell him he's the bad guy, the wrong guy, but essentially say, thanks a lot. You did a lot of good things. If you watched any of the Jan 6, I'm sure you have, Poindexter, I thought was the best. He started off on his little speech before he talked about what happened on that day as an internal national security, deputy national security uh, uh, counsel. He said, I really believed in everything that Donald Trump did. I liked what Donald Trump did. I supported him 100% until I could no longer support him on that day. He said it was a bridge too far. So I think that most of the people, if you look at it uh, rationally, not emotionally, would say the same thing if you are a Trump supporter, meaning that they liked a lot of things that happened along the way. Maybe they were not thrilled with the personality. But what happened on January 6th was, that's it. I'm done. Even Betsy DeVos, okay, not to mention her name, but she was loyal and even she walked out. Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Elaine Chow, walked out. People didn't walk out. at the. They could have hung on for two weeks. They just said, I got to draw a line in the sand. So what me January 6th is about is that, as you say, political purpose. I don't disagree. Anyone can trot that out on any one of 100 different levels and say, that's proof that Donald Trump should not be in office. I think it punctuated that he wasn't prepared for the office. And never mind the testimony, whatever, things that we all got to see. This assault on the Capitol is going on three hours when he could have got on the TV and said, hey, knock it off, get out of the building. Didn't do it. There is no dispute about that. I was in California at the time and I was listening and the radio reports were coming on and they were calling. It was, I was driving and the president was railing against Mike Pence. And I'm like, this guy is off his rocker. And thank God Mike Pence said, A, I'm certifying the election and B, I'm not leaving the Capitol grounds. And this is why it's just astonishing to me that normally when you watch like a trial go on, the witnesses get stronger and stronger at the end and then you finish strong. And I just watched the Democrats and some of whom, of course, they fed Raskin his own video of him not wanting to certify electors four years earlier. And now he's railing about not certifying electors. So that kind of hypocrisy gets put back but then also you bring in a witness that's going to put this to bed. And this is what you have to believe. All right. Donald Trump leaped from the back of the beast, this huge mm -hmm. SUV, got his hands on a Secret Service agent and w was trying to overpower him. That's what she said. A few months earlier, remember Donald Trump was too weak to walk down a ramp at West Point by himself? He had to drink water with two hands. One of these can't be true. And of course, the Secret Service said... Nope, that didn't happen, and we'll come in and testify. And what did we hear from the punditry? Well, that part of her story wasn't important. 
and ignore the three things she said that were quite frankly bullshit, but believe everything else she said. I, I think it's like it's like well, the the game that couldn't shoot straight. The I, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, my feeling is the star of this thing is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney uh, has been calm, very clear, and if you want to talk about crescendo, she's a you know she learned from her you know her father quite well. She knows how to ratchet it up to buy. She didn't start off by saying Donald Trump should not be president again. She moved that all the way towards the end, and she gave her, her big time speech when Benny was out with COVID. And I think Liz Cheney uh, did a really good job. And she was speaking directly to Donald Trump. She was not speaking to the country. She was basically saying to him, you run again, and you know, you're going to have a, a lot of people that are not are going to be against you. And I am going to be one of them. And I'm going to make it my mission. I kind of feel like January 6th is a Liz Cheney uh, mission. Uh, Kinzinger is okay. He's a you know war hero. He's not as articulate as Liz Cheney, but she is quietly polished. What do you think? Well, I, look, I think they did the job they were sent to do. It, it is clearly a partisan group. There's no counterbalancing narrative, so you have to accept that. Just just like every day of the trial you're at, the prosecution puts on their case and think, well, they got the guy, and then the defense comes in and you go, oh, yeah, that that's the case now. Since Johnny Cochran long since left this mortal coil, I don't know what Donald Trump would do in terms of defense. I know, frankly, I don't want to see it. And so I kind of think this is going to end kind of like the Mueller report. We really don't have anything indictable, um, but unless maybe you want to talk about these things and just leave it hanging, I think it's going to keep people in their polar camps. But again, the thing that just baffles me is if I'm a Democrat, it's like, yeah, we want Trump to run. <laughs> it's like, well, we have to stop him now so we can't run again. It's like, just beat him. Like, you're telling me your party is so bereft of candidates, policies, and ideas, you can't beat an, an obvious, crazy narcissist who we all got to watch. That's that's what you're telling you're, the world. Yeah, you're on to a, a bigger subject here, which is the Democrats um, don't have an agenda. Right. And I write about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And the agenda that they do have is clearly not in the majority of the United of the, of the citizenry of the United States. Definitely not. They're not. The progressives are not. They think that they've got some kind of uh, majority. They don't have it. the big preponderance of people are in the middle. Yes. And so uh, and a lot of those. Yes, there are. Uh, it's diversity. But a lot of those are white suburban women, people like that. And so those are the people who are really kind of a backbone of this country, in my view, okay? And they are not being very well uh, served uh, by either side. So when I, look, when I look at what's going on now in Congress, you, you want to say half empty, half full. Okay, let's go back to your chips thing, just as an example. Mm -hmm. I've seen some really good bipartisan stuff. So let's give people some credit where credit is due. They, they passed the infrastructure bill. They passed a gun, uh, gun yep. uh, bill. Bipartisan on the gun bill. Bipartisan yep. on the gun bill. They passed now the, the, the CHIPS things that we talked about. They passed, I think, Marriage Equality Act. That's going to go through. These are things that the majority, vast majority of the uh, population of the United States agrees with, regardless of what Supreme Court and Amy, Car you know, Amy Coney Barrett or anybody else or, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas 
or anybody else. So that is not a bad thing. That Those are good things. And I think that there is a, um, and I'm not going to give Biden credit for that. I can give Joe Manchin credit or well, anybody you can, else. You can give the Supreme Court credit for actually when we've had big changes in the country. You know, Medicare, for example, there had to be a broad consensus for big things. And the Supreme Court threatening some of these big things like marriage equality, it made our legislative branch react to that and say, well, wait a minute, we're going to codify this into law and make that what what we think people... We have no choice. Right. And in a perverse kind of way, the judiciary has forced the legislative branch... I I don't disagree because unless the... We talk about this all the time. You and I spoke about it. The legislative branch has basically not stepped up for a long time. And you're right. The left wing was relying upon SCOTUS... A Supreme Court to basically protect certain rights. The right side says, we don't think that that's right. Okay. And you can argue, argue about originalism mm-hmm, or right. anything else that you want to do, which is probably not the point here. But I think that as now said to the Congress, there's enough people, whether it's 60, 70% kind of majorities, we should be able to get some of this stuff, at least the basics um, into law. So we don't have to argue about it. abortion is too difficult. Okay. But a lot of these other things, such as marriage equality um, or interracial marriage or things like this or contraception, there's, I don't know if can you, you believe, Can you believe that, that we're talking about that in 2022? I mean, that just... But look at Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst, I don't know if you know this, sure, she's pushing the oh, over-the-counter contraceptive. Let's get it off the table. Whoa. <laughs> my, my point is, yeah, that's, it's, there it, are it Republicans is, who have said... Exactly respond. Well, where's the constituency thing? for that? I mean, where, 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 where are they? Do you know anybody that says, hey, here's a good idea. Be sexually active and don't take any contraceptives. Like, is that, that is no, like no. the worst of the bad ideas. But that also shows that, you know, when you have any kind of extreme uh, power in, in the supermajority now, uh, conservative in SCOTUS, means that uh, on a positive sense, and I try to look at the, you know, the glass is more than half full, is that the Congress is actually stepping up. And I don't give Biden any credit for that. I give actually the credit to the American people. You know, nobody wants to go backwards on some of the basic uh, fundamentals. Indeed. And you cannot trust what's going to happen now uh, in the Supreme Court, and once there's a change, probably going to happen in uh, the congressional side, maybe not in the Senate. Well, then that means we're going to get a lot of of the opposite. And that concludes part one of Rich's interview with Robert Greenfield. You can catch part two of this interview and the conclusion of it as episode one seventy three, which will drop a week from today, and. You can also catch us at Substack and use the Substack app. It's really great. I think you're really going to like it. And you can read the transcript there as well as make comments on there as well. So we'll see you next week on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe.